This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Today's Sunday Morning Podcast is sponsored by Trex. At Trex, we know there's a place for wood in your backyard. We recommend the fire pit. But when it comes down to choosing the right material for your next deck, look no further than the superior beauty and durability of the number one name in outdoor living. Trex delivers the look of wood without all of the work and the worry. And it's made from 95% recycled materials, which makes it the right choice for your backyard 100% of the time. Make sure your next deck is built with Trex. Visit trex.com to order samples. Jane Polly is off today. I'm Lee Cowan, and this is Sunday morning. Happy Father's Day. We'll be celebrating all you dads throughout the morning. But first, we'll focus on an ongoing emergency that's threatening our firefighters, posing a risk as hazardous as anything they've faced before. Tony DeCopel will report our cover story. Firefighting has always been a dangerous job, but these days the biggest danger isn't the fire itself. The environment that we are expected to work in now 
is the most toxic in my opinion, the most carcinogenic in my opinion that any firefighter has ever been exposed to. Later on Sunday morning, the battles firefighters are waging against cancer and the cities that don't want to pay for it. Our Sunday profile this morning is of actor Tim Allen, who's buzzing once again as the voice of our favorite animated astronaut. And he'll be in an animated conversation with our Tracy Smith. To infinity and beyond! Tim Allen's the voice of a character loved by what? kids around the world. There's a secret mission. But he's break. not the Buzz Lightyear you think you know. I liked all this success, but I don't like kids that much. You really don't like no, kids I that don't, much. I don't, I don't dislike, I just, they take too much attention away from me. <laughs> to infinity and beyond with Tim Allen. It's a ridiculous automobile. Coming up on Sunday morning. East meets West at a spot in Utah that's rich in history. We'll get on track with our John Blackstone. 150 years ago, steam trains opened up the West and united the nation from sea to sea. An accomplishment made possible by the labor of thousands of workers who have largely been forgotten, celebrating those who built the Transcontinental Railroad ahead on Sunday morning. For one set of twins, doubling down on a much-talked-about internet investment may be a real gamble, explains Nicholas Thompson. We have an idea we want to talk to you about. They became famous as the privileged pair of Harvard athletes who believe Mark Zuckerberg stole their idea for Facebook. He stole our website. Now, Thank you so much. famously successful Bitcoin entrepreneurs. My mother is watching right now. What does she have to do to buy her first 100th of a Bitcoin? Download the app. We make it super painless. All right, Mom, give it a shot, but don't put in too much. <laughs> I'll be speaking with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. Later on Sunday morning. David Pogue marks the birthday of a blockbuster video game. Nikki Batiste introduces us to the mother of Father's Day. Well, Jim Gaffigan proclaims enough is enough. And more, all coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. Battling a raging inferno is clearly an emergency for those who put their lives on the line to fight it. But even after the flames are out, a danger lingers that is proving just as deadly. Our cover story is reported by Tony DeCopel of CBS This Morning. It's one of the world's most dangerous jobs. Firefighters put their lives on the line every day to save the lives of others. Firefighters like Mike Palumbo. And that I will faithfully. And that I will faithfully. Discharge the duties. Discharge the duties. A fire captain. A fire captain. He was drawn to service, I think. He was very passionate about giving back to the community that gave him the opportunity to have that career. During Mike's more than two decades of service, his wife Chrissy and their five kids couldn't help worry about the job's more obvious dangers. But a few years ago, far from any smoke or fire, Something else caught up with Mike while hiking near the family's home in Beechwood, Ohio. I knew as soon as we got there, something was wrong, and I tried to convince him just to get back in the car. He was like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And we got down the ravine. He literally walked into a tree, and I just panicked. Chrissy rushed Mike to the hospital where they learned he had stage four brain cancer. What do you do when you get that kind of news? 
I literally crawled into bed with him and just prayed into his ear. I had my kids brought in because I didn't know if they'd ever see him again. Prior to that, was he ever sick? I mean, did no, you ever see him? No, he was healthy. He was so healthy. It's just so mind-boggling that you have this young, healthy, strong, happy guy. And then in a snap of a finger, your life is turned upside down. For Mike's family, his diagnosis was a shock. But in fact, it's part of an alarming national trend that's caught the attention of researchers like Dr. Jeffrey Burgess at the University of Arizona. The cancer risk that firefighters have is unique to being a firefighter. They have so many different types of cancers that have been shown to be elevated. He says the biggest danger to firefighters today has changed from the fires they fight to the smoke those fires produce. Since 2002, almost two out of every three firefighters who died in the line of duty died of cancer, according to the International Association of Firefighters. We have about 13 members right now who are battling various stages of cancer active members, and we have a number of retirees in that fight. Joseph Finn is chief of the Boston Fire Department. So this is the memorial wall? All the black and whites are members who've passed away from an occupational cancer. Since 1990, Finn says cancer has killed more than 200 of his colleagues. How does that compare to the number of firefighters who die in the fire itself? Certainly outnumbers it at least 10, 20, 30 to 1. Johnny Fiscaldo, I went to high school with him. He's a great running back. That's a change from the past, Finn says, and scientists believe it may be linked to another change in modern building materials. Everything you buy today is laced with plastic. So once they decompose and they combust, they're going to give off all these toxins and carcinogens that are really deadly to firefighters. According to the CDC, that includes formaldehyde, asbestos, and arsenic. And adding to the risk is an age-old tradition in firefighting, a celebration of soot as a sign of good work. What did it mean to be dirty back then? There was a badge of honor. The dirtier you were, it looked like more work you'd done. You were the guy who got the thing job done. And now, as if surviving the flames and then fighting cancer weren't enough, some firefighters are facing another, even more stunning challenge from the very cities they're protecting. Buddy. 37-year-old Patrick Mahoney is a firefighter in Baytown, Texas, a city full of refineries and chemical plants. We're taking on an inferno like this one in April is all in a day's work. In 2017, after 15 years of service in Baytown, Mahoney discovered a bulge on his neck, thyroid cancer. And we already had, at that point, one or two guys in my department that had cancer. And these were all people who were not smokers, did not use chewing tobacco, they were healthy people. When I was diagnosed, I definitely felt that it was job-related. It's impossible to ever be sure what caused a particular case of cancer. But Texas is one of 38 states with so-called presumptive laws, meaning if an active duty or recently retired firefighter is diagnosed with certain types of cancer, it's presumed he or she got it on the job and is entitled to workers' compensation benefits like lost salary and medical coverage. But for many firefighters, those benefits are still out of reach. My city's workers' comp carrier initially flat out said, we don't cover cancer. Mahoney appealed his case and won twice. But then the city of Baytown sued him to get the decision reversed. 
to be sued like this after they denied it is a betrayal. It makes me sometimes just want to go work at a coffee shop because I feel like they don't care. At issue, according to Baytown, is whether Mahoney's thyroid cancer should be covered under Texas law. Baytown has been seeking judicial clarification, the city explained in a statement, adding that paying each claim could cost the city between $600,000 and $2 million. And Mahoney's case is not unusual. Since 2012 in Texas, more than 9 in 10 firefighters have had their workers' comp claims denied, according to the Texas State Association of Firefighters. I just want to let you guys know that I love you, that I am ready for this fight. And it's the same back in Ohio, where Mike Palumbo worked his entire career. Like any other person who gets sick or injured on the job, the benefits should be there to take care of their health and to replace their income. It's that simple. Somebody breaks a leg at work, it's covered. In 2017, Mike and his family had helped pass the Palumbo Act. It just means something to me on so many different levels. Tonight, a handful of Ohio firefighters, including one from Beechwood, celebrating a victory for their health. A law that presumes that firefighters will receive benefits if they get certain types of cancer on the job. Firefighters want to help, and now they'll have the help. It truly means a lot to me. Yet when Mike himself was too weak from the cancer treatments to work, his claim was denied. Mm -hmm. All right, are you ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, you have to wake up, though. Tell them. He was only two months shy of official retirement when he had to turn in his badge. Give him a kiss. Just clarify his head. There you go. Ten months later, at just 49 years old, he died. It's not like he died in a fire. And you can say on this day at this time. He died from all the fires. Yeah. You're telling me that because my husband died slowly from his job, that he shouldn't get the same benefits as somebody who died suddenly from their job. And that is the bottom line for me. Two years after Mike's death, half of current firefighter cancer claims in Ohio have either been denied or are caught up in appeal, including his. Chrissy Palumbo says she'll keep fighting. Fire departments around the country, meanwhile, have begun to focus on prevention. So this is one of the things Tucson has done to help reduce cancer risk. What does a washing machine have to do with cancer? So when they go to a fire, they get the cancer-causing chemicals over all their gear. In Arizona, Dr. Burgess says one of the easiest things firefighters can do to prevent cancer is wash their gear and themselves immediately after a call. In the past, they wouldn't segregate their gear. They may go sit down in their living quarters, maybe with their gear on Watch and get TV. it on the couches, et cetera, yes. These firefighters are also taught that looking dirty isn't heroic, but dangerous. Air masks have to stay on, even after the flames are out. And many departments are investing in a second set of gear, so something clean and hopefully carcinogen-free is always handy. But for those who have been on the force for years, like Boston Fire Department Chief Joseph Finn, the damage may already be done. Do you think today, standing here talking about this, you're carrying remnants of fires from the 80s? Uh, there's probably a good chance of that. And Finn wonders if we can't protect this generation of firefighters, 
who will come forward in the next generation to protect all of us. Is there one of these fire trucks that would have been the kind of fire truck your dad used? It's this one right here. Your youngest son <sighs> wants to be a firefighter like his dad. He does. Knowing what you know about the profession, how do you feel about that? It frightens me. He emulates his dad. He misses him greatly. Do you remember when you decided you wanted to be a firefighter? Ever since um, I went to the fire station for the first time. What was that like? Um, basically, better than going to Disney, I can say that. Bottom line, if you had your say as a parent, would you want Nicholas to become a firefighter? No. It's a good profession, it's a good life, but our family's suffered enough. A blockbuster video game has just turned 10 years old. It's pretty ancient in that space, but it still attracts fans block by virtual block. David Pogue has the state of play. Let's go to a place where everything is made of blocks, where the only limit is your imagination. One of the best-selling video games of all time has no guns and no blood. It doesn't keep score, and the graphics make no attempt to look lifelike. It's up to you. It's called Minecraft. How popular is Minecraft? Since its debut a decade ago, it's sold over 176 million copies, and more than 91 million people play it every month. Okay, so what is Minecraft? It's something like virtual Legos. For a tour, I sought out an expert. And what is your current occupation? I'm a future grown-up. <laughs> He's actually my 14-year-old son, Jeffrey. In a nutshell, what is Minecraft? It is basically a virtual world where you can build and destroy things and play with friends, basically. If we're gonna build like a house, um, we're gonna want a certain selection of blocks. So I'll choose cobblestone, um, oak wood. I'll build a very simple house. I'll just place the outline first so that I know what I'm going to build. It's gotta have a window though. Oh, okay, I can add that. Then we'll just grab a bit of glass and then you can just put it in simply like that. It's a very nice place you got there. Thank you. It doesn't seem to bother him that everything in Minecraft looks kind of crude and blocky. This game just makes everything very simple and very easy to understand. There's nothing really complicated going on. I know we have to take Minecraft's simple appeal has made it a phenomenon. Yeah, I got it! Who's excited to be here? Kids come by the thousands to attend Minecraft conventions like this one in Los Angeles called Minefair. I was the eighth employee and the first woman working on Minecraft. That's where I met Lydia Winters, Minecraft's chief brand officer. She's had a front row seat to Minecraft's exploding popularity. Every year we were like, is this the craziest year? And then the next year was even crazier. So it's been an incredibly wild ride the whole time. In 2014, Microsoft bought Mojang the small Swedish company that makes Minecraft for two and a half billion dollars. We were all kind of thinking, what happens now? But it's been amazing because I think what Microsoft has done is they brought a lot of help in bringing things that we've wanted to work on like education, but didn't have the amount of people to work on it. 
Wait, education? It's true. From math, to chemistry, to history, some teachers are seeing the benefits of playing Minecraft in their classrooms. We're taking kids in an environment that they love. They love games. Now they're making their own games. Please export this. Steve Isaacs is a teacher at William Annan Middle School in New Jersey. His Minecraft game design class is a required course for seventh graders. During our visit, the class used Minecraft to build mini games based on familiar fairy tales. So, your fairy tale is? Um, Hansel and Gretel and Little Red. <laughs> That's two. Well, we like mixed two of them. So like, it's an adventure and you have to solve some puzzles. We chose uh, Jack and the Beanstalk and we kind of like Minecrafted it. <laughs> nice. So you, that's the beanstalk there? Yep. And you are... Play testing it just to double check that like all the things work. Do it again then. Do Steve it. Isaac says that in his classroom, Minecraft has done more than give his students the basics of computer coding. Ryan, be ready, be ready. Go. It's changed lives. Case in point, this student, Brian Green. This is where he's shining, you know? Not, not in every other class. And the coding type stuff we're talking about I mean, he has, you know, he does things in this game that I couldn't possibly comprehend. So the command I'm going to do is just slash summon cow. <laughs> You've made an endless loop of cows! <laughs> I hear you're kind of like a star in this class. Apparently, yes. <laughs> I would have to agree with that statement. <laughs> I think I'm a non-traditional learner. And this, tr this class is taught very non-traditionally. It's very, very hands-on. In Minecraft, it just clicks for me. It just works the way my brain works, and I love that. I will put this here. Brian even sees career possibilities as a game designer. Yeah, of course, man. Or he might, for example, follow in the footsteps of another former Steve Isaac student, Jerome Assetti. There you go, pal. Better known by his online nickname, Jerome ASF. Much better known. Get in your picture. Thank you. Awesome, thank you. Are you a YouTube celebrity? Uh, I suppose so. I, I don't really like to think of it that way. So if that interests you, go... Five and a half million people follow his videos on YouTube. Nobody! So most of which feature him playing Minecraft as he narrates. I'm actually moving everything down here to make for the ultimate island, which we YouTube displays ads on those videos, and he gets a percentage of the revenue. You're making a living from making videos that appear on YouTube. Yes, it's the complete opposite of what my parents always said. Don't play video games, it'll never... But no, it, uh, it worked out, and I'm very happy and grateful for it. And hey, we just passed 2,000 people watching. Thanks for being here. What do you sense is the future and direction of Minecraft? I truly believe it'll be the first video game of our time to cross the generational gap and to future and future generations. Minecraft executive Lydia Winters would probably agree. We're going to be looking towards a lot of future architects and, and future designers who say like, Minecraft was what inspired me to actually build this real life building because in the game I could use this incredible digital canvas where anything you want you can make Still, no plans to make it high-resolution, lifelike. It's going to keep being chunky blocks. We feel like it's worked so far, so we should really keep it that way. To Steve Hartman now, and a Father's Day story with a lesson to teach.
classes here at Axel Academy in Aurora, Colorado have been out over a week now. But for middle school math teacher Finn Lanning, there's one student he just can't shake. 13-year-old Damien. Do you know how many pencils I went through this year? Like way more than you should have? Yeah. Damien says Mr. Lanning was definitely one of his better teachers. When like a teacher doesn't bother me over and over again, that's better. <laughs> you have a low bar. <laughs> yeah, like leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, I'll get my work done. He's smart and funny, um, and he was always a student that stood out. And then one day he just came to me and said, I'm not coming back to school. Finn sat him down at that table, right then and there. And what I found out was his story. He learned Damien was in foster care, that he had kidney disease, and because social services couldn't find a foster family willing and able to meet his medical needs, Damien had to leave school and move into a hospital. But here's the real kicker. The kid needs a transplant, desperately. And a lot of times you can't get a transplant if you don't have a stable home to return to after surgery. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, you just can't sit across from somebody that you care about and hear them say something like that and know that you have room to help. And that's how Finn became a foster parent. He took in Damien, dialysis needs and all, even though prior to that hallway meeting, he'd been a confirmed bachelor who delighted in his childlessness. I never thought that I could leave school and take one of them with me and still survive, right? Damien says, right back at you, bro. I was like, yes, I'd get out of the hospital, but I was like, my math teacher out of all the people. <laughs> now, four months into it, oh, yeah. neither one of them would change a thing. <sighs> Although Damien says he's not getting too excited just yet. We match? He's seen fairy tales fall apart before. It's kind of bad thinking about that, but some people actually do that. Like, they'll like just kick you out, one, they'll be happy with you one day, and they just kick you out the next. I suppose only time will let you trust. Yeah. Whether he believes it or not doesn't change the fact that um, I'm not going anywhere. This is it for him? Yep. In fact, Finn says he plans to adopt Damien as soon as possible. Is that enough pepper? In the meantime, and much more importantly, because of Finn, Damien got back on the transplant list and just two days ago got his new kidney. For a child steeped in disappointment, this is shaping up to be the best Father's Day weekend ever. A new kidney and a dad by his side. Although Finn says that dad title, that's going to take some getting used to. That role it has such meaning attached to it, right? And it's not that I'm not willing to do it, but it feels like you have to earn it in some way. You did. <laughs> Earned it. I hope so. And epitomizes it. That's my favorite. I love that one. That's by far my favorite game. East meets West at Utah's Promontory Summit, the spot where we just celebrated the 150th anniversary of the Transcontinental Railroad. As John Blackstone explains, East met West there in more ways than one. It's something railroad enthusiasts believe they might never see again. One of the biggest steam locomotives ever built back on the tracks, rumbling West under its own steam. As Union Pacific number 4014 pulled out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, crowds lined the tracks, waving at engineer Ed Dickens, urging one more pull of the whistle. I don't know what it is about that whistle. 
We hear whistles, we hear horns in our life, but the steam locomotive whistle is really something that just, it just moves you. Dickens led the small team of Union Pacific workers who spent five years toiling to bring the massive machine back to life. Just give me some idea of the scale of this. I mean, these wheels are almost as big as we are. This is 17,000 pounds all by itself without everything else hanging off of it. 4014 is one of just 25 locomotives built in the 1940s, aptly named Big Boys. 132 feet long, weighing more than a million pounds, producing 7,000 horsepower. But when the age of steam came to an end in the late 1950s, 4014 became obsolete. Until Dickens and his team brought it back to life. Their goal was to get 4014 rolling again in time to celebrate one of the greatest rail accomplishments ever, the Transcontinental Railroad, built at the urging of President Lincoln. It's very humbling that all of the sacrifice, the tremendous human effort, to build something as complex as a set of railroad tracks across territory that many people have never even been across before. Crews worked from both the east and the west, finally meeting on May 10th, 1869 at Promontory Summit, Utah. And we call it the moonshot of the 19th century. It was impossible. It was an impossible dream. At Golden Spike National Historical Park, rail fans dressed in style to mark the anniversary. Well, if not always with historical accuracy. President Lincoln, this was all your idea, was it not? Uh, I wasn't the only one that had the idea, but I was thankful to have a big part in it. Replicas of Victorian steam engines rolled in for a reenactment of the legendary photo celebrating the driving of the Golden Spike. But the faces in that photo from 150 years ago look much different from those gathered here this time. It took 150 years to gain that recognition. So our history is now coming alive. They are descendants of the Chinese laborers who made up about 90% of the workforce on the western portion of the railroad. The workers on the line who cleared the way for the railroad, who laid the roadbed and laid the track and laid the ties and so forth, and then especially did the tunnels, was almost exclusively Chinese. Gordon H. Chang, a history professor at Stanford University, is the author of a newly released book on the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad. The gold rush had brought thousands from China to California in the 1850s. When construction of the railroad began in 1863, the Chinese were not the first choice to work in it. There was belief that they were either temperamentally or physically unfit for railroad work, but workers they hired on did very, very well for them. They were very, very pleased. Ultimately, they hired up to 20,000 workers. Not only was the Chinese labor force plentiful, the workers were paid less than whites doing the same job. And the work was hard. They took on the most challenging portion of the Transcontinental Railroad, California's granite mountain range, the Sierra Nevada. Fifteen tunnels had to be blasted, carved out through the Sierra Nevada. The Chinese carved out those 15 tunnels, the longest one being over 1,600 feet in length. And it took more than two years using only hand tools and black powder. In the newspapers of the day, Chang found recognition for the contribution the Chinese rail workers were making to a growing nation. To read the history,
Jeff Lee, a retired dentist from San Jose, California, is inspired by the hard work his great-grandfather did. They don't come over as Hulk, right? They come over as pretty much me, right? And they learn to adapt to what they had to do physically, mentally, emotionally, as uh, individuals and as groups. And Lee is proud of where these tracks have taken his family. Doctors, uh, dentists, architects, UC Berkeley, Yale, Princeton. But soon after the railroad was finished, the nation's mood began to turn against the hardworking immigrants. With the rise of the anti-Chinese movement, the earlier history of what they did in California is erased. The Chinese are driven out in town after town and their homes destroyed. The Chinese became undesirable and therefore you don't want to include them in the history of the country. That erasure is what the descendants gathered at Promontory Summit wanted to set right. So this is Lin Lip Hong, my great-great-grandfather. She came here when he was 12. So he was on his way back to China, but he stopped in San Francisco and said, no, this is my home. I love America. Much has changed in 150 years for families and for the railroad. The old steam locomotives that originally traveled these rails were replaced by massive machines like 4014. But even this giant had to finally give way to modern diesels. Still, there is value in preserving the memory of all that came before. The locomotives, the tracks, and those who built them. Some of us remember Tim Allen as Tim the Toolman Taylor from the 90s TV show Home Improvement. Your kids, however, probably know him as the voice of Buzz Lightyear, a role that is still out of this world. Tracy Smith has our Sunday profile. He might be the most famous street racer in America. Scared all these guys. They just they good. You probably know his face. <laughs> But every kid old enough to watch a TV screen knows that voice. To infinity and beyond! Tim Allen is the man behind Buzz Lightyear, the make-believe space ranger in Disney's Toy Story franchise. There's a secret mission in uncharted space! <gasps> Along with Tom Hanks as Woody the Cowboy. That's great! Bonnie had a great day in class. and Most Disney features tug at your heartstrings, but Alan says this one really gives them a solid yank. Come on, help me get out of here. I'll help you. With my foot! I can't even... It, Tom and I read it, and neither one of us could um, contain our emotion. And it made you cry? Yep. What do you think it is? Of course, his career has been nothing to cry about. You don't want our money. What do you need money for you? Alan has created some of the more popular characters anywhere, from the stand-up stage. You don't believe your men grunt, do you? Give them a steak, honey. Is that good? <laughs> to the big screen. How come your clothes are so baggy? Because Santa is watching his saturated fats. To a TV show that became a ratings powerhouse. Now there's raw power. You drive all of these. I used to. He now has the toys to show for it, like a garage full of classic cars at his L.A. office. But none of this, the cars or the career, came easy. Born in Colorado in 1953, Timothy Allen Dick was only 11 when his father Gerald was killed by a drunk driver. 
a tragedy he says he still feels to this day. When you grew up, what were your dreams as a kid? Well, it gets difficult for me sometimes. My, uh, my father was killed when I was a young boy, so most of my dreams was wondering why that happened and who's responsible, how can I get at that person? What sort of a world is this? That at one moment your father's there, best guy in the world, next moment he's not there. In college, young Tim studied philosophy and design. But maybe his biggest life lesson came in the late 70s when he did two years in prison on drug charges. How close did you come to ruining your life? Pretty close. Uh, got myself in trouble, ended up doing some prison time, uh, humiliated my family, and all of it was uh, selfish. What clicked for you then? I said to myself, I don't want to do this again. I want to pay my mom back. I, she, I put her through hell. And then somehow in there, I started making, what do you want to do? I want to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He eventually made it to Johnny's couch, but only after some rough nights on the road. In Akron, Ohio, it's just been eating. And all I hear was him, so I started mimicking that because I was frustrated. I went, oh, 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 oh. And these guys, hey, that's funny. That grunting stuff is funny. Go. And that idea became home improvement. Full three-inch pin capacity. Tam, do you ever listen to me? It was the last thing that I said in bed to you last night. No, I believe, if you recall, the last thing you said to me in bed last night was, no! In the mid-90s, Home Improvement drew more than 25 million viewers a week. You're thinking of tonight. And back then, it seemed everything Tim Allen touched turned to gold. Because of the small In November 1994, he had the number one TV show, the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list, and the number one movie, all in the same week. I think it's time to drill. Of course, more wasn't always better. I struggled with alcohol most of my life, but I didn't know that that's what it was. What one people would say, a glass of wine is good, two bottles would be good for me. I don't even like wine, it, whatever it was. And related things, drugs and alcohol were, were my story, part of my story. Hey, I'm happy. But after another run-in with the law and a few years of personal turmoil, Tim Allen cleaned up his act. This problem that you have with excess as you describe it, you've been able to manage. I've been a sober guy for going on 21 years. Through it all, Tim the Toolman was the heart of home improvement. And he was ultimately the one who decided to pull the plug. Home improvement was still at its height when you said, that's it, we're done. It was a big, big decision because the, the, the powers that be at Disney, the, the offers were uh, obscene. I mean, uh, to keep. Can you, can you tell me how obscene? No. It's just, it's rude. But it's just, they, they was like, are you kidding? That was their first offer, was more than you'd ever think. And I go, oh boy. Oh my God, are we poor? <laughs> you are. We're doing very well. Of course, Tim Allen is still on TV. His latest show, Last Man Standing, is on Fox. Like Alan himself, his character, Mike Baxter, has conservative views, a rare bird indeed in Hollywood. You describe Mike on Last Man Standing as an educated Archie Bunker. Right. You like to push people's buttons on that show? What is that? Donald Trump? I dressed up as Trump, but then all of a sudden we're Trump supporters. Because we just, we didn't take a shot at him. So I now says, wait a minute, 
they think we're Trump supporters, so this might be kind of fun. So then we started poking that button, and especially in the People's Republic of California, if, if you don't think one way, then you immediately are labeled a million different things. I said, this is going to be fun. Fun, maybe. But as he showed us, he hasn't completely left home improvement behind. You kept it? It's 99% accurate. It's taken forever to get all the pieces. Alan, who turned 66 last week, salvaged the original Tool Time set, though he insists there's no reboot in the works yet. But it's still here, the set. Yeah. <laughs> you did point that out, yes. It is still here. Why'd you want to hold on to it? I love that show. And he also has a soft spot for this. Audible. It's a Dodge Demon a 900-horsepower monster with a six-figure price tag. Listen to this. Well, it's, it's just, it's an angry automobile. Okay, it's also a really fun automobile. <laughs> I, I, it's more smiles per miles to me than anything else I've ever driven. And but it's only for quick trips. Got. Turns out his main car is a battery-powered Tesla. Alan has two daughters, and he says he dreams of a greener world for them. This Toy Story, and I think you could say all of the Toy Stories, are about finding your purpose. Yeah. Have you figured out what your purpose is? You've got to leave this a little better than you found it. If I can be of some assistance to solving a bigger problem, either fuel, batteries, I, I, we play around with cars all the time, that would be something, that would be something to shoot for. Fixing something, Fixing how appropriate something. is that? Yeah. <laughs> and with his darkest days in his rearview mirror, <laughs> Tim Allen's aiming for a brighter future and beyond. Being a father is a lifelong commitment, unless that is, you're Jim Gaffigan. I have an announcement. I'm retiring. That's right. I'm announcing my retirement here on CBS Sunday morning. I'm not retiring from being a stand-up comedian or an underrated film actor. And no, to some of your disappointment, I'm not retiring from doing this CBS Sunday morning commentaries. I'm fine with getting criticized online by lunatics. I'm retiring from the hardest, worst job I've ever had being a father. I'm sure many of you will view my parental abdication as a sign of weak character or shirking the responsibilities of nature and spirituality. Whatever. I'm out. It's too hard. I don't want to be involved in finding my replacement. I'm not giving two weeks. I'm out as of now, people. I put in 14 thankless years. During that time, not once did any of my soon-to-be former children offer to pay for a single meal. Not a movie, nothing. <laughs> You'd think one of my sons would have bought me a beer. Nope, nothing. <sighs> I've been ridiculed, mocked, and blamed for everything. And I, <laughs> I did everything. Well, everything my wife told me to do. I changed diapers, cleaned up throw up, and I even acted angry when the kids were making noises that annoyed my boss, I mean my wife. I'm not suggesting I do more work or even half the work my wife does. I'm just saying I don't want to do the little work I do anymore. I feel no guilt relinquishing my role of dad. 
I leave these children and my remaining money in the capable hands of their mother, Jeannie Gaffigan. I was only ever Jeannie's vice president, sometimes serving as her enforcer, her best friend, or her sycophantic accomplice. But that is over now. The time has come for me to hang up my pizza ordering abilities, to pack up my iPad hiding skills, and well, not be a dad. <laughs> well, that was easy. <laughs> now, who's gonna tell my wife? Um, Cause I'm afraid to. My brother and I, we pay tuition at this school. We carry a 3.9 GPA at this school. We've won trophies for this school, and we'll be rowing in the Olympics for this school. I want a meeting with the goddamn president of this school. The twins you may remember from that movie, The Social Network, are in real life making a fortune, doubling down on an internet investment that, let's just say, defies an easy explanation. Contributor Nicholas Thompson, who's also editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, helps make sense of it. Their names are Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, identical twins and Olympic athletes. Mark. Famously portrayed in the film, The Social Network. Cameron Winklevoss. Hi. Tyler Winklevoss. Are you guys related? It's good, funny, never heard that before. As a privileged pair of handsome Harvard jocks, who believe Mark Zuckerberg stole their idea for Facebook. He stole our website. Those characters are interesting, but they're not really us. They were a bit stiff and maybe not full dimensional. The Winklevoss twins are back in the spotlight again. We probably bought our first Bitcoin within a block of here. This time, as very successful investors in Bitcoin, having turned their $65 million Facebook settlement into many hundreds of millions of dollars. If you believe that Bitcoin is the beginning of the internet of money, you can actually buy a piece of it. Anybody in the world can. And there's tons of people who have made a lot buying a piece of that future. And there's a nearly equal amount who have lost a lot. Ben Mesrick wrote the book that the social network was based on. A decade later, news that the Winklevoss twins had gambled big and won, investing in Bitcoin, got his attention. It made me start to think that they weren't at the helm of two revolutions by accident. For him, the Winklevoss's second act was too good to pass up. They're Greek gods, essentially. They've got everything anyone could think one would need. Why don't they just roll off into the sunset? Indeed, the Winklevi did seem to have everything. Pretty girls, private planes, invitations to all the best parties. Why did two guys, Olympic athletes raised in Greenwich, Connecticut, educated at Harvard and Oxford, gamble it all on something as slippery and nearly incomprehensible as Bitcoin. As Ben Mesrick sees it, because of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, all over again. They go out to Silicon Valley to become venture capitalists, and nobody wants their money because everyone's end game is to sell your company to Facebook. Right. And because Zuckerberg hates the Winklevoss twins so much, that becomes an impossibility. So they head to Ibiza, as one does, right? Someone walks up to them and pitches the idea of Bitcoin. Yes, the Mediterranean island of Ibiza, playground of the rich and famous. The year is 2012. Set the scene. Where exactly are During you? During the day. Shorts or pants? Probably shorts. shorts. <laughs> it's the beach. So, you're in Ibiza. Somebody tells you about this thing. Currency that can be sent like email. It's all based on math. You don't have to trust a banker or a president. You just have to trust the code. And then you make a big decision, which is to buy 1% of all of the Bitcoins 
in the world. You know, some people, uh, they might dive off a diving board. I think in this case, we took a cannonball off the diving Both board. Both of you at the same <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. What was the price then? I think our first Bitcoin was, was in the high single digits. That's eight or nine dollars a coin. It's now trading about 9,000. Though that is down from 20,000 at its peak. And I should say, I don't invest in it, and I would tell my mom not to invest in it either. Our thesis at the time was Bitcoin's going to disrupt gold. And gold has a market cap of $7 trillion today. So if Bitcoin's going to be worth $7 trillion or more, this seems like a cheap asset. A cheap asset being sold on a place where people sell magic cards right. as opposed to in a bank. It was complete Wild West. The Wild West, currency free of government oversight or regulation, the perfect place for all kinds of illicit behavior. It's a bunch of people who are anarchists, who want to smash the state, whose identities aren't known, who are selling drugs, right? Your early business partner goes to jail for multiple years. That's exactly what informed us and what not to do and what had to change. You say you still don't understand Bitcoin? Don't worry, you're not alone. It's hard to digest it all at once. Let's take some bites and let's digest them. Yeah. So, when you literally buy a Bitcoin, what have you bought? You're buying a piece in the Bitcoin ledger that represents a fixed digital asset. So it's like buying a bar of gold, but there's no physical component to it. So you're buying a bar of gold, but it's not a bar of gold. It's just a bunch of numbers. So there's a giant ledger. Right. It's worth yep. a certain amount of money that changes over time. Exactly. The twins point out that most people don't know how the internet works, but we all use it. This is money that works like your email, and that was the aha moment for us. Money that works like your email? Easy to use, fast. Sounds pretty great, doesn't it? I think I turned to Tyler and said, hey, this is either the next big thing or total BS. Was there a moment in the Wild West period where you guys looked at each other and said, what are we doing? Let's just get out and go back to what most of the people from Greenwich and Harvard are doing, which is working at a hedge fund instead of betting on this crazy stuff. So I think instead of looking at it and saying, let's get out, we said, let's get in more. And that's when we started to found Gemini. You guys bought coffee with the app, right? Yeah, yeah we literally went, walked into a Starbucks. Getting the average person excited about Bitcoin is one of the aims of Gemini, the cryptocurrency exchange the brothers run. They asked, is it Apple Pay? And I was like, no, it's better. <laughs> Their offices occupy 50,000 square feet on New York's Park Avenue South where some 200 employees are working hard to make Bitcoin as easy to buy and sell as possible. So let's buy some Bitcoin. All right, let's All do right. it. So open up my phone. And though there are other Bitcoin exchanges with more traffic than Gemini, the brothers hope their app will encourage regular people to get their feet wet. Bitcoin looks like it's up 1% today. Let's buy it. I'll buy $10 Bitcoin. Continue, swipe up to place order. All right, Look at that. I got yes. some Bitcoin. All right, let's sell this. Sell, sell my max. Of course, there are lots of risks and fees. Man, I lost $2.08 with you guys. You should have helped. <laughs> Later this week, the twins' old nemesis, Facebook, will announce a cryptocurrency launch of its own called Libra. Do you feel like they're copying you? I don't know, we haven't seen what they're doing. The brothers say they're not worried. 
There's so much pie to grow. I mean, at this point, we need to be frenemies. But Facebook has entered a lot of markets with pie to grow, and usually it eats the pie. I think this pie is different. One possible scenario with Facebook would be they come in and they change things in a way that hurts Gemini, but that also validates things and drives the price of Bitcoin way up. So you guys lose your company, but make a ton more money. How's that feel? We'll have to, we should hire you to come in and, and war game with us. <laughs> As to how it's all going to play out, we may just have to wait for the next movie. Just how did we come to celebrate Father's Day in the first place? As Nikki Batiste tells us, its origins may surprise you. Uh, ready? There we go. Good job. Pancakes and a parenting playbook be his nose. help score 2019 Pro Football Hall of Famer Tony Gonzalez, an award no touchdown ever could. Just like you learn how to catch footballs and run routes, you got to learn how to be a good father. There you go. Gonzalez is one of this year's Fathers of the Year, and his trophy looks a lot like an Oscar for dads. I always tell my kids, uh, it's not my job to make you great. It's my job to teach you how to be great. The title puts the retired NFL star in some pretty impressive company of men. But to really appreciate it, you have to go back more than a century to a woman. This is Sonora. It is indeed. She's the mother behind Father's Day, Sonora Smart Dodd. This right here is her father. William Jackson Smart, a Civil War veteran and widowed father, raised Dodd and her five brothers. I love this. this Barbara Leesky and Betsy Roddy are Dodd's granddaughter and great-granddaughter. She writes, people often say to me, you know, Mrs. Dodd, fathers who aren't what they used to be. This remark is enough to get my dander up. Yeah, that, that's her. That's her. <laughs> Dodd went on to start her own family in Spokane, Washington. And in 1909, they attended a church service on Mother's Day, itself a new idea. She then approached the minister after the service and said, well, I wholly support the idea of Mother's Day, but what about fathers? When do they get their day in the sun? The following year, the very first Father's Day was celebrated in Spokane on June 19th. She had hoped to actually have Father's Day be on June the 5th. That was her father's birthday. Unfortunately, it was a little too late to get that done. But that's why it's in June? Exactly. On that inaugural Father's Day, Dodd handed out red roses to living dads and white to honor the deceased. But unlike Mother's Day, officially recognized by the government in 1914, dads wouldn't have their official day for more than half a century. When Father's Day was started, people made fun of it, actually. Mother's Day was a much more easy concept, I think. There was a sense of fathers being stoic and not perhaps being used to being showered with affection. Then, some retailers in New York City joined the battle to make Father's Day, well, Father's Day. Would there be a Father's Day council had there not been a Sonora Dodd? I don't think so. Yes, there really is a Father's Day Council. We've recognized more than 500 outstanding dads. Dan Orwig runs the nonprofit group. His day job is in merchandising. Our goal was to um, build the awareness 
of the Father's Day uh, holiday, which was not uh, nationally uh, celebrated officially. At least not until 1972, when President Richard Nixon made Father's Day a permanent national holiday, a day Sonora Dodd lived to see. Talk about an amazing final fruition of a dream. You know, a dream that starts by simply wanting to honor her father. An honor the Father's Day Council continues with their Father of the Year Award. Remind me how to play this again? So you say you're not Father of the Year material? You might consider taking a page from one of Dave Engeldahl's books. He's dubbed himself the world's best father and has no shortage of documentation. I created this character that is often, you know, distracted, clueless, uh, completely inappropriate as a way for me to work through my own fears as a new parent. What you done right here? His photos feature daughter Alice, now eight, and of course, okay. that signature mug. Is he the world's best father? Mm, he's up there, but not exactly up there. <laughs> I'll, I'll work harder. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, what do you rate him as a dad? Maybe a seven. A seven. <laughs> seven. Okay, now look up. Lift your chin up a little bit. Still, the there world's best dad is now his full-time calling. And in that, he thinks, is a message for dads everywhere. I love you, kid. My own biggest fear as a parent is being distracted. A lot of the photographs is it's a reminder to myself like to put the phone down and, and watch the kid grow up. Um, I don't always achieve that goal, but uh, that's one of my goals. I'm Lee Cowan. Thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. We'll see you again next week. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.